You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 65, The Provincials Occupy Bunker Hill. So last week, we had Congress voting to authorize a Continental Army and choosing George Washington to lead it. But before word of Congress's decision reached Boston, the Provincial Army would clash with regulars at the Battle of Bunker Hill. The Massachusetts Provincial Army had been besieging the regulars in Boston since the evening of April 19, 1775, when they chased the regulars back from Lexington and Concord. In Boston, General Gage had assumed a defensive posture. With the arrival of Generals Howe, Burgoyne, and Clinton and their reinforcements, the British decided it was time to go on the offense again. On the southern side of Boston Harbor sat Dorchester Heights. The high ground there would give the Provincials the ability to bombard both Boston and the fleet in the harbor. Similarly, on the northern side of the harbor, on Charlestown Peninsula, Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill provided attractive ground from which the rebels could threaten both Boston and the fleet. Now, for months, the British had kept the Provincials from occupying either high ground by threatening to attack if they dared attempt any such occupation. So far, those threats had worked, but there was no guarantee that would continue. The three new generals who had recently arrived were eager to prove that their leadership could put the militia on the run and that Gage was simply too timid to get the job done. In early June, General Gage held a council of war at which his officers agreed on a plan to capture both of those key locations. Now, General Howe, the senior officer below Gage, would lead the attack. On Sunday, June 18th, British artillery on Boston Neck would open up on the Provincials in Roxbury. General Howe would then lead an infantry attack across the Neck, taking Roxbury, and then up Dorchester Heights, which was behind it. From there, several regiments would move north to Cambridge, chasing off the Provincial Army Command, and then moving on to Charlestown Peninsula, where they would occupy Bunker Hill. The new officers assumed that the provincials would simply break and run in the face of the British regulars' well-organized assault. Now, I can almost hear General Gage thinking to himself, yeah, good luck with that, guys. These provincials fight a lot harder than you think. Still, Gage approved the plan. In truth, the provincials had not actually held any ground against the British at Lexington and Concord. They simply used a series of hit-and-run attacks to make life miserable during the march. It was not unreasonable to assume that even if there was a firefight, the British force would not have a problem capturing the unoccupied high grounds at both Dorchester Heights and Bunker Hill. But nothing in Boston stayed a secret for very long. Provincials soon learned of the plan attack 
and prepared a preemptive strike of their own. On June 15th, Provincial Commanding General Artemis Ward convened his own council of war. The provincial officers voted to occupy Bunker Hill. This was the highest point of the Charlestown Peninsula, the farthest away from the village, and the closest to the neck where they could call for reinforcements or retreat if necessary. The council gave command to Massachusetts Colonel William Prescott for the occupation of the hill. Prescott had seen action in both King George's War and the French and Indian War. His leadership in the assault of Nova Scotia in 1755 had resulted in the offer of a commission with the British regulars, an offer he declined. After the French and Indian War, Prescott lived as a country farmer and officer in his local militia. His militia unit had marched to Concord after hearing the alarm on April 19th, but living way up on the New Hampshire border, about 40 miles from the battle, arrived too late to see any action that day. Prescott and his militia had participated in the ongoing siege ever since. On the evening of June 16th, Prescott led about 1,000 Massachusetts militiamen onto the Charlestown Peninsula, which, as you recall, had been a no-man's land since the beginning of the siege. He had orders to set up a defensive line on Bunker Hill. Joining the Massachusetts militia were about 200 Connecticut militia. Connecticut General Israel Putnam joined the Connecticut militia assigned to this mission. Now, although General Putnam outranked Colonel Prescott, Putnam did not assume command. Prescott remained in charge of the mission. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Gridley, an engineer and head of the artillery, provided guidance on how to best fortify the hill against an attack. Now, for some reason, once the men arrived on the site, they decided to fortify Breed's Hill instead of Bunker Hill. Breed's Hill was not as elevated. It stood closer to Charlestown Village and the harbor. The provincials' presence there would present a threat to the British Army and Navy, since the heavy artillery could hit Boston from there as well as ships in the harbor. But Breed's Hill also made an easier target for the British artillery. The new location made any retreat more difficult, as defenders would have to retreat up Bunker Hill before they could cross the Charlestown Neck back to the main army. Now, there's no good record as to why they made this last-minute adjustment. It may have been General Putnam that encouraged the more aggressive position. That certainly seems in keeping with his character. In any event, the men began digging entrenchments and fortifications on Breed's Hill around midnight. Now, if they hoped to go undetected until morning, they would be disappointed. Back in British-occupied Boston, General Clinton went for a late-night walk and heard digging and construction taking place across the harbor. He alerted Generals Gage and Howe that something was going on. The generals, though, decided to wait for daylight when they could see for certain what was happening. If the provincials were up to something, no one wanted to consider a spontaneous nighttime attack without any preparation or planning. At dawn on June 17th, the British saw the provincials hard at work fortifying Breed's Hill. Admiral Grave positioned eight naval vessels and soon opened up an artillery barrage. But solid shot at that distance was pretty ineffective in taking out soldiers. Almost all of the balls simply sunk into the mud on Breed's Hill. The men soon realized how ineffective the shooting was and got back to work. 
Now, one lucky shot did manage to decapitate one unlucky militiaman, but that was it. The officers quickly and unceremoniously buried the soldier on the hill, mostly so that his comrades would not become unnerved by looking at his decapitated body all day. Of course, if they had been fortifying Bunker Hill instead of Breed's Hill as planned, they would have been much more difficult targets for the naval artillery. With the defenses mostly in place by late morning, Colonel Gridley left the field before any combat started. Many of the militiamen also left the hill before things got too dangerous. All day, Colonel Prescott would have to deal with the slow trickle of desertions. Around 9 a.m., Prescott called for reinforcements, expecting an all-out attack later that day. His men, who had been digging all night, were exhausted. Most of them did not have provisions and were getting pretty hungry and thirsty as well. In Cambridge, General Ward received a request for reinforcements about 10 a.m., but decided not to send any. General Putnam, who had been on the hill all night, personally went to plead with General Ward for more troops. But Ward was still worried that the British would begin their main assault against Roxbury on the provincial's right flank. General Percy, on the British side, had begun an artillery barrage across Boston Neck. This could have been a prelude to an assault on the still unoccupied Dorchester Heights. It was, however, simply a feint to keep the provincials occupied so that they would not send more reinforcements to Bunker Hill on their left flank. And the feint worked. Ward kept his reinforcements in Cambridge in the center of the provincial line. From there, he could deploy his forces south toward Roxbury or north toward Bunker Hill, depending on what the enemy did. Putnam persuaded him to send another 200 New Hampshire militiamen, not even enough to replace the overnight desertions. But the bulk of the more than 10,000-man provincial army simply sat around waiting in reserve. Despite the lack of reinforcements, the men who had worked all night continued to work on the defenses throughout the morning. Around midday, several provincials arrived with cannons to place in the redoubt on Breed's Hill. Unfortunately, the defenders had made no provisions for cannons. Colonel Prescott had already sent his digging tools back to Bunker Hill. He did not want to send more men to bring them back. The troops who had taken them away used the opportunity to flee from the field and not return. If he sent more troops to collect the tools back, they would likely flee as well. So the men tried to dig holes in the mud by hand, but made little progress. Finally, they simply loaded a cannon, fired a ball through the mud embankment, and created a gun hole. So far, the provincials only had to face a few cannonballs lobbed their way. At daylight, back in Boston, British General Gage convened another council of war to decide how to respond to the provincials. After some debate, the council agreed that General Howe would deploy about 1,500 regulars across the harbor to a point just south of Breed's Hill and near Charlestown Village. From there, the main force would assemble and directly assault the unfinished entrenchments. A secondary force would make a flanking maneuver on the right against the undefended portion of Breed's Hill. Assembling the men would take time, and it would be difficult to land them at low tide. With high tide at around 3 p.m., the British planned to land the men in the early afternoon for a late-day assault. Throughout the early part of the day, the Navy continued its fire on the provincials, 
the army would also fire from Copps Hill in Boston, too far to do much damage. The British cannons kept up a constant, if relatively ineffective, barrage against Breed's Hill. Admiral Graves also maneuvered several gondolas mounted with cannons into the shallow waters just south of Charleston Neck. This gave the Navy a position to fire on advancing reinforcements or retreating enemy who tried to cross the Neck. By mid-afternoon, General Howe had landed most of his force of 1,600 east of Charlestown Village at Moulton Hill, just southeast of Breed's Hill. And if you want to look, I have some good maps on my blog site where you can see exactly where all the troops are being placed and how they move. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. The General House troops landed safely out of the range of musket fire. By this time, he saw that his planned assault on the provincial left would have to get through the defensive barrier that Prescott had spent the day building. Howe felt confident that his men could take the defenses. To make certain, though, he decided to bring over another 700 reinforcements so that he could hit the provincials with overwhelming force. So the regulars already in Charlestown settled down to have an early dinner while they awaited the additional reinforcements. Meanwhile, Prescott's provincials continued to dwindle. Militiamen, hungry, tired, or just plain scared, slipped away before the battle even began. The extra time did give Prescott more time to improve his defenses, but he really needed reinforcements if he wanted to have any hope of standing up to the ever-growing army of regulars making their way across the harbor to Charlestown. Now, General Howe's landing showed Prescott that he was vulnerable on the provincial army's left flank. Howe could simply march his men across the field to the east of Breed's Hill and then come around from behind and capture the entrenchments. Prescott deployed Captain Knowlton of the Connecticut militia to set up a defense on their left flank. Knowlton began building up a breastwork around a rail fence. Even so, Knowlton did not extend his defenses all the way to the edge of the Mystic River. He left a pass open along the shore where Howe could send his grenadiers and move up behind Prescott's lines. Eventually, though, New Hampshire Colonel John Stark, who commanded the New Hampshire reinforcements that Ward had approved, saw this weakness and built a breastworks along the beach and used his infantry to protect against any British flanking maneuver. This would later prove critical to protecting the provincial lines. Prescott also ordered Lieutenant Colonel John Robinson and Major Henry Woods to take several companies forward on the American right. They advanced toward Charlestown to harass the British troops landing there. On Bunker Hill, Putnam found his artillery commanders, Captain Callender and Captain Gridley, the nephew of Lieutenant Colonel Gridley, the engineer who had set up the entrenchments on Breed's Hill the night before and then left the field. These two officers had almost no experience firing their weapons. Upon finding their powder charges too large to fit down the barrels, they simply gave up on firing. General Putnam argued with them, showing how they could ladle the powder into the cannon and then fire. Yes, it took a little longer, but it was better than doing nothing. He ordered them onto the field in front of Bunker Hill, where they could fire on the British landing. The artillery crews fired a few rounds, but were horribly inaccurate. 
they eventually gave up again and tried to pull back. Putnam, angry at the unauthorized retreat, demanded that they go back and fight. They succeeded in drawing away the British artillery fire from Breed's Hill and towards themselves. One British round hit and destroyed one of the provincial cannon and killed several members of the crew. Now that was enough for most of the artillerymen, who either slipped away to join the infantry or deserted altogether. Captain Callender tried to retreat with his guns, but ran into General Putnam once again. Callender first claimed that he was out of ammunition, but when Putnam opened up his ammunition boxes and found them full, Putnam angrily demanded Callender return to the field. Then Callender told him that as a Massachusetts militia officer, he had no obligation to obey the orders of a Connecticut officer. At that point, Putnam threatened to kill Callender unless he returned. The shamed Callender agreed to return, but as soon as Putnam rolled off, Callender and his men abandoned their guns and fled from the field. Now, both Captain Callender and Captain Gridley would later face court-martial and leave the army. Gridley was found not guilty, but apparently soon afterward resigned his commission. The court-martial found Callender guilty and dismissed him from the army. As a side note, though, after losing his commission, Callender continued to serve as a volunteer and hoped to redeem himself. He bravely fought the following year in New York, refusing to retreat this time, and he was nearly killed by the enemy on Long Island. When a British officer, noting his brave defense, prevented his troops from killing him, Callender was captured and spent more than a year as a prisoner of war in hellish conditions before being exchanged. After that ordeal, he had his commission and honorable reputation restored. But back on Bunker Hill, by early afternoon, General Ward realized that the British assault on Roxbury looked less likely and decided to commit more provincials to Bunker Hill. However, as the companies attempted to pass over Charlestown Neck, they felt the impact of the British Navy's gunboats that Graves had deployed to attack anyone attempting to cross the Neck. Two larger ships also had cannons within range of the Neck, so units attempting to cross would take casualties. The inaccurate cannons would not kill many, but a few beheadings by chain shot was enough to intimidate most unseasoned militia from risking the crossing. As a result, many companies simply waited on the mainland side, hoping they would not receive direct orders to march through the field of fire from the enemy cannon. Among those was a company commanded by Major Gridley, the son of Colonel Gridley and cousin of Captain Gridley. Showing the same level of coolness under fire as the rest of his family, Major Gridley refused to cross Charlestown Neck and later faced a court-martial for breach of duty and refusal to obey orders. New Hampshire Colonel Stark, who was returning with more New Hampshire troops, had to push his way around the other companies who were too scared to make the crossing. Around the same time, Joseph Warren also walked over the neck. Warren, who had been suffering from a migraine all morning, was determined to join the fight. Warren remained the Provincial Congress president, but had also been appointed a major general in the Massachusetts Provincial Army. So his colleagues begged him not to go, but Warren insisted that he would not demand others take risks that he would not. He met up with Prescott on Breed's Hill, insisting that he would only serve as a volunteer soldier 
and would not take command. Other companies would also cross, but almost none joined the actual battle. Instead, most of those who crossed the Charlestown Peninsula watched events unfolding on Breed's Hill from the relative safety of Bunker Hill. Even Bunker Hill, though, was too scary for some. Colonel Samuel Garrish took one look at the enemy from Bunker Hill and ordered his men to retreat. When General Putnam attempted to force his men forward, Garrish literally threw himself on the ground and claimed he was too exhausted. He would soon retreat with most of his men. Amazingly, Garrish would not be court-martialed for his cowardice on this day, but he would be court-martialed a few months later for similar actions. So other than Stark's reinforcements on the left flank, Prescott would receive almost no reinforcements on Breed's Hill itself, other than the arrival of General Warren. In fact, his force on the hill had dwindled to about half its original size due to desertions. About 500 defenders on Breed's Hill had been there all night building the defenses, with little food, drink, or rest. They now faced a force of over 2,500 British officers and men, as well as 125 British field artillery, not even counting the artillery still firing from Gops Hill in Boston and the fleet in the harbor. Next week, General Howe, now confident in his overwhelming force, finally assaults the provincial defenses on Breed's Hill. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, I'm back again for another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to that, I want to remind anyone who's listening to this episode shortly after publication that I will be at the Revolutionary War reenactment at Red Bank, New Jersey, right across the river from Philadelphia on Sunday, October 21st, 2018. If anyone wants to meet up there, let me know. Also, just a quick comment for anyone who listens to this podcast on Stitcher. I've received word that the Stitcher app has been playing ads alongside my podcast. Just so you know, those are Stitcher ads. My podcast gets no benefit from them. I will keep posting on Stitcher since if you want to put up with their ads, you're more than welcome to. But if you don't want the ads, you can still listen to the podcast through dozens of other applications, including iTunes, aka Apple Podcasts, 
as well as Google Podcasts, Podbean, CastBox, Player FM, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Spotify. I could go on and on. You get the idea. In fact, if you can't find me on some service, let me know, and I'll probably get it added there. So there are plenty of ways to listen to this podcast without ads. And and as I've mentioned, I have been experimenting with some advertising, but as of the recording of this, there are no ads associated with my podcast. That may change at some point, as I would really love to cover some of my expenses. But enough about that. Today's episode began the Battle of Bunker Hill. Although we really didn't get to much shooting this week, I ended the episode with General Howe just about to begin his first assault on the provincial defenses on Breed's Hill. Normally I like to cover an event in a single episode, but I had so much to say about Bunker Hill And since I really like to keep each episode about the same length, I made this one a two-parter. I think Bunker Hill really gets more coverage than it deserves. It happened at the beginning of the war, which always seems to get more coverage. And Massachusetts seems to produce many more historians per capita than other parts of the country, and they tend to give more attention to their local history. That said, I find the battle fascinating because, as we saw in today's episode, it showed the Americans as the amateurs that they were. There was no good command structure or strategic vision. We had generals taking orders from colonels, soldiers coming and going, mostly going from the battlefield at will, officers from different colonies refusing to follow any sort of chain of command, or even coordinate strategy. Despite all that, as we'll see next week, and I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone, the provincials do an amazing job of defending themselves against an overwhelming British force. Now, someone also questioned my use of the term provincials recently to describe the colonists. Later in the war, after independence, only loyalists described themselves as provincials. But before declaring independence, the patriots also called themselves provincials. In this case, the patriot army was under the control of the provincial congress. In a couple of weeks, I'll get to call them continentals, because the Continental Congress takes control of the army. But for this week and next, the term provincial works best. Alright, let's get to the book recommendation. This week, I have a book that I have read multiple times and absolutely love. It's called Bunker Hill, A City, A Siege, A Revolution, by Nathaniel Philbrick. As you might guess from the title, this book gives good detailed coverage of the Battle of Bunker Hill as well as events leading up to the battle during the Siege of Boston. I've already discussed some of those earlier events in my earlier episodes. The book is very well written and an interesting read. The book itself was first published in 2013 and is about 400 pages long, but the last 100 pages or so are notes and indices, so only about 300 pages for the story itself. In the year of its release, it won the New England Book Award for Nonfiction. The author, Nathaniel Philbrick, is a professional writer who, guess what, lives in Massachusetts, so a great many of his books also cover various aspects of Massachusetts history. He has another really good book about the Mayflower and the Pilgrims. He wrote Valiant Ambition, which is a story about George Washington and Benedict Arnold. Also, just this year, he published a book about Yorktown, which I have not yet had the chance to read, as almost all my reading these days seems to be on the early part of the war. I'm sure I'll get to it soon and will enjoy it as much as his other works. 
He has dozens of other books, and if you want to read more about them, you can check them out online. As for the book of the week, though, if you want to read more about the Battle of Bunker Hill, Philbrick's book is a great option. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.